Just out these doors to our right. And let me invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. If you're just joining us, we've, we've begun this new series in the Gospel of Mark where uh, we're just going to keep looking as, as Mark shows us how people respond to Jesus, the different reactions that we, that we see as, uh, as folks respond to him. And I think this will increase our own faith, hopefully help us respond more fully and react uh, with, with greater hearts uh, to the grace and the love that Jesus has for us. Uh, this is it may seem like a, a fairly, you know, innocuous passage. Uh, okay, yeah, right, Jesus calls the disciples, but there's a lot here. Uh, so let's stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Father, we pray that you would help us to receive and to respond to your word to us this morning. Show us Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. All right, please be seated. So, so this is a passage that probably sounds familiar to you if you've been in church before, and you know, and if this is not your first rodeo, you know, oh yeah, the calling of the disciples. That's nice. That's nice. Um, but listen to listen to one scholar's perspective on on this sort of just nice passage. He says it is not an exaggeration to say that the seeds of the Christian church originated in the first act of Jesus's public ministry in which he called four fishermen into community with himself. This is like the foundation of the church happening right here. These four men responding to Jesus's call to follow him. And ever since then, every one of us, you know, anybody who's ever lived who has called themselves a Christian, you know, we go back to this first calling. These are the first four members, so to speak, of, of Christ's assembly. Um, and there's something really important here as Jesus is preaching. He's talking about this new kingdom that he's bringing. And with this new kingdom comes a new calling for, you know, James and John and, and Simon and Andrew and for all of us. We get a new calling and that uh, means that we also have a, a new rubric for our obedience. Uh, we get a new calling, we get new obedience. So let's, let's start by looking at the new kingdom. Um, I want you to look at verses 14 and 15 again. Jesus is coming into Galilee. It's just after John the Baptist was arrested, and he's proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom 
of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those sound like Jesus-y words, right? Those sound like what you'd expect Jesus to say. And odds are they, they sound, you know, pretty, I don't know, safe or spiritual or religious to you. Um, but I want you to imagine if it, maybe you tuned into the State of the Union uh, address this past week. I don't know if you watched that or not, but um, I want you to imagine the president beginning his State of the Union address with something along these lines. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen and citizens of the United States of America, I have some very troubling news, very, very urgent news to share with you. Our country is being invaded. Our, our country is under siege. Uh, and, and no, it's, it's not from the southern border. <laughs> In this case, I want you to imagine our country is being invaded from the northern border. And we are under attack. There is another kingdom coming down into our sovereign nation about to upset and disrupt everything that's happening. How would you respond to that news? What would you feel? Like, what would you be thinking? Oh my goodness. Everything I've ever known is about to be, be, be uh, you know, disrupted. Uh, with, with rare exception, you know, almost everybody in this room, we really haven't lived through a war that's affected our soil. We've never had an invasion on our country's borders, right? But that's what Jesus is essentially saying here, because he's saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a promise, I mean, that's, that's comforting to us who are familiar with those words, but I need you to understand and see those words as a threat as well a threat to the status quo, a threat to any other kingdom besides the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is on the move. The kingdom of God is invading every other kingdom. Uh, there's language here that's really important. Um, when it says that Jesus came into Galilee, when Mark's audience hears those words, they go, oh, any other king, any other kingdom that's come that's come into Galilee, Syria, always been an invading army. Whether that goes back to Assyria, who came down, marched from the north, south, they came into Galilee before they reached Jerusalem. Whether it was Babylon after Assyria, who came down into Galilee as they marched south to attack the capital of Jerusalem. Or whether that was Persia after the Babylonians, who came down south into Galilee, you know, before conquering God's people. And then you get to like the seventh um, or, or 63 BC and um, Pompey the Great, the Roman general, and he came into Galilee on his way to Jerusalem for Jerusalem's surrender. And that was what began the, the Roman occupation of, of Israel. Do you see the succession of invading kingdoms into Galilee? That's the paradigm. That's the mindset I think we need to have as we're reading these words. Read them fresh, hear them fresh. And what you see is this language of the time is fulfilled. Uh, I want you to imagine a, a cup that's being filled almost to the brim and it's about to overflow. And there's, 
You know, an overflowing cup, on the one hand, that sounds great, it's abundance. On the other hand, it's like, it's gonna make a mess. That's not supposed to happen, that's not good. Um, Jesus says that, um, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, Mark uses that same expression in chapter 14, right at the end of his gospel, to say how um, when Jesus said that Judas Iscariot was approaching, Jesus says, behold, rise, let us go, my betrayer is at hand. There's something ominous about that expression. There's something threatening to what, is, what feels safe, what feels normal. And you, you could read these verses and, and, and insert the Roman Empire into them, right, where you would see the same sentiment expressed. The Romans came into Galilee, um, you know, maybe it was Pompey the Great saying, the time is fulfilled, the empire of Rome is at hand, right? That's not good news. But in this case, it is good news because Jesus isn't like any other king. And his kingdom isn't like any other kingdom. Uh, when, when Paul reflects on the time being fulfilled, he's, he tells the Galatians that when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law. When Jesus says the time is fulfilled, yes, it's a threat, but it's, this, it's a good kind of disruption. He intends to bless us. He's not like any other earthly king. He doesn't have an earthly kingdom. He has a heavenly kingdom that he's bringing to bear, which means that Jesus' invasion is altogether different. He didn't come into Galilee to take captives. He came into Galilee to, to take followers, right? He didn't come into Galilee to bring destruction. He came into Galilee to bring restoration. Um, he didn't come into Galilee uh, to hate his enemies. He came into Galilee to love his enemies. He didn't come into Galilee to, to enslave his enemies. He came into Galilee to redeem his enemies. He didn't come into Galilee to kill his enemies. He came into Galilee and ultimately into Jerusalem uh, to, to die for his enemies, to lay down his life for his enemies. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. That's the kind of kingdom that he brings. Nonetheless, the state of the union, the state of you know, man's kingdom, the state of normalcy as, as the world knows it, is being threatened. Things are no longer going to be the same. You can't maintain a status quo when you have an invading king bringing a new kingdom. It, it, it forces a decision. It, it brings a, a point of contention to bear. And things are not going to be the same. But when you see Jesus, when he comes, when he's this heavenly king, bringing his heavenly kingdom, everybody stands back and they go, we've never seen a king like this before. This king does everything well. That's, that's the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And he announces this message, right? Repent and believe the gospel. Or repent, believe the good news. Um, this is the same message, essentially, that, that John the Baptist had been preaching. That's not something necessarily new, radical to, to Jesus. It's, he's continuing the message of the prophets, you know, the good news that God has been revealing sort of in, in fits and starts and in phases and chapters along the way. And now Jesus is putting it fully on display. Repent and believe the good news, which, which is disruptive too, right? Because uh, this message of repent and believe the gospel is something that 
that uh, God's people had been uh, anticipating would come, that, that there would be a, a leader, a king, a, a Christ, a Messiah who would, who would come and who would bring his kingdom. But, but it's going to be a kingdom that kind of affirms the way we've been doing things as God's people all along, right? God's for us. He wants to bless us. And so when the Christ comes, we know what he's going to say. He's going to come and he's going to say, all right, Rome, you know, all right, God's enemies, all right, every other kingdom on, on this planet, uh, repent for the kingdom of God has come. So what, what, what the people in Galilee would be imagining, what the people in Israel would be imagining is that the Christ is going to come and he's going to tell the Romans to repent. But that's not what Jesus says. He's talking to God's people and he tells them to repent. And he's challenging our sense of what the kingdom is about, our expectations. Like we, we've got it figured out. We know what God's kingdom is all about. And Jesus says, no, you don't. Jesus didn't come here to baptize our way of doing things. And he didn't come to affirm our status quo. He didn't come to say, yeah, 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 you've got it all right, and I'm here just to wipe out everybody who's resisting you. Instead, Jesus came to disrupt us, our sense of what's good and what's normal. He came to bring his kingdom, not our kingdom. Jesus came to bring his new order for life, not just simply to validate his own. So, you know, when, when we pray, like we've already done in this worship service, we, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and Jesus is challenging our default mode of doing life, our default mode in our soul even, which is fundamentally this, this you know, we're not even conscious of it. We just kind of go through life thinking, my kingdom come, my will be done. And that's why everybody else is mistaken except me, you know. That's why I'm surrounded by idiots, right? Because it's my kingdom being coming and it's my will being done. And that's why I, want, I think everybody else should repent, not me. Everybody else needs to apologize, not me. And Jesus is saying, if that's your way of doing life, repent. Turn. Change. Richard Lovelace says that the Greek word for repentance, metanoia, literally means a change of mind toward God toward oneself, and toward others. It's a Copernican revolution, radically different, in which self is evicted from the center of life and the Messiah is enthroned instead. It's a new kingdom coming. And he gets to call the shots. And we go through life now, instead of thinking, well, I know what's best, and we start thinking, no, what does Jesus think is best? Instead of thinking, I know what's true, we go, no, what does Jesus say is true? And so thinking, I know what is best for you. You can, what does Jesus think is best for us? And so on. And so he says, believe in the gospel. Repent, change, and, and not, be evicted self from the throne and believe. Believe the good news. What does that mean? Well, there's a lot of ways we can unpack that. But I want you to think of belief as simply a transfer of loyalty from one king to another. And I mean, it's not complicated. Just basically ask yourself this. Which kingdom do I believe will bless me? Jesus appeals to, you know, our sort of self-preservation all the time. And so it's fine to ask, which kingdom 
is, is going to bless me. Uh, if I stick with you know, the, the kingdom of self and you know, kind of the world as I know it and how I've been operating all along, is that going to bless me or is Jesus and his kingdom going to bless me more? Which one do you believe will bless you? If you stick with the kingdom of self, you get what the kingdom of self offers. But if you transfer your allegiance from self to Jesus, you get what the kingdom of Jesus gives you. The kingdom of self, um, you, you can have, in the kingdom of self, you can have self-righteousness. That's fun. That's appealing and attractive. And, and when you zero friends and you will have zero influence on people, uh, the kingdom of self will give you all the self-righteousness you could ever want and, and, until your little heart is content. Or in the kingdom of God, you can have Christ's righteousness. You can have his right record applied to you so that the Father would look at you and see no fault in you. You'd be forgiven. In the kingdom of self, you know, you get all the, the tricks and the, the strategies and the, the coping skills that the self teaches us, which is to lie, hide, <laughs> um, blame, uh, deny all of those, all those wonderful ways where we uh, affirm ourselves and we try to build ourselves up in our own eyes and in the eyes of others. Or you can have the kingdom of God where Jesus says, I will take your sense of shame on me. I will absorb into my flesh your guilt. And I will take those to the cross where your guilt will be paid in full and I will bury them in a tomb and it will be finished and it will be done for forever and you, united to me, will have new life. You will be raised to be part of a new creation. That's what the kingdom of God offers you. Or you can have the kingdom of self. You can have the kingdom of self or you can have the kingdom of God. Which one do you believe will bless you? And then go, in, go all in. Only in every kingdom you think is going to bless you. But you can't have both kingdoms. You have to choose one or the other. And when you have that new kingdom that Jesus is offering us, he says that we also get a new calling and a new obedience. Um, let, me, let me show you this in uh, verses 16 and following where Jesus is passing alongside the Sea of Galilee and he sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea they're fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, you know, they left their nets and followed him. Um, Simon and Andrew are brothers. Simon is Peter, right? Um, maybe some of you remember uh, when Peter professes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that's when Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. He says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And Mark is writing down, recording Simon Peter's, you know, uh, basically his biography of Jesus' life. That's how we got Mark's gospel. And so Peter had told Mark about, yeah, when, when my brother Andrew and I, we were fishing, we were casting our nets, and that's when Jesus came up and said, follow me. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So, you know, Peter is a fisherman. And he does what fishermen do. He fishes. That's his calling. We, we are called by what we do. You know, that's sort of who we are is what we do. And, uh, 
And so if you would meet Peter, you know, on the side of the Sea of Galilee, say, hey, I'm Essen, what's your name, Peter? Oh, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a fisherman. And that same goes true for just about every other kind of role that we play. If you meet somebody who's, um, you know, a salesman, they, they, you know immediately what they do. They, they sell stuff. You meet a repairman, they repair stuff. You meet a, a garbage collector, they, you know, they, they, a trash man, they collect trash. You meet um, all kinds of people are referred to by their roles. And we have all kinds of roles that we play and titles that go along with that. Callings, right? Like if you're a mom or a dad or if you're uh, a manager, you know, you're, that's, that's what you do. You're a manager or you're an assistant manager or maybe you're the assistant to the assistant manager. Or you, you're, you're a starter on the team or you're the drum major or you're a pastor, you know, whatever the, the role is, that's your calling. And that our calling is what we call ourselves. These can be really fulfilling in lots of ways, and they're blessings to many of us in the different roles that we play, but there's a problem when your fundamental identity is tied into what you, know, you do. Because if any one of those things gets taken away from you, then there's this crisis of self. Like when, if you're a mom or a dad and you're your kids grow up and they move out of the house and there's nobody around to call you mom and dad every day, then like, who are you? Or if you lose your job, you're no longer the manager, you're no longer the assistant to the assistant manager, then what? Or, you know, you get injured and you're no longer the starter on the team, you know, then what happens to your sense of self? What, what happens when your identity is tied into simply what you do? And when that ability to do that gets taken away, you're nobody. And so for Peter, Jesus fundamentally changes his sense of calling, he and his brother Andrew. And he says, you're no longer to be identified as fishermen, but followers. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And he's saying, I'm not going to tie your identity to a role you play, but I'm gonna, I want your identity to be, to be tied to the person that you follow. So and previously, if you met Peter, maybe he would have said, you know, hey, I'm Peter, I'm a fisherman. And now, after this moment, this encounter with Jesus, if you met Peter, he would, and you say, well, hey, what do you do? And he would say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I fish, right? So if anybody stops you and asks you, you know, hey, what do you do for a living? You say, I follow Jesus, and I teach, you know, and I, you know, sell stuff, and I do this or that or the other. So Jesus is changing our fundamental way of viewing what we are and what we do. Um, Jesus constantly refers to different occupations, right? He talks about uh, farmers and he talks about uh, merchants and he talks about um, shepherds and sowers and, and here we got fishermen. All of these vocations are good, but if that is the extent of your identity, it's going to fail you. When you're no longer able to do those things, your sense of self gets wrecked. But if fundamentally you are a follower of Jesus, if you get a new calling, that never can be taken away from you, no matter if every skill and every ability and every faculty is removed from you, you can still follow Jesus. You can still give your heart to him. And that means that you'll never get that crisis of self anymore, that Jesus is still your center. And that means that therefore all the, you know, farming or teaching or, you know, whatever you're, you're studying, you know, if you're a student or a repair person or whatever, uh, all of those are done ultimately as expressions of how we follow him so that he becomes central 
and everything else just revolves around him and his kingdom. So we get this new calling. Uh, that's what Simon and Andrew did. And then we have this example of a new obedience in the kingdom of God. Verses 19 and 20 say that Jesus went on a little farther and he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and with the hired servants and, and followed him. Um, you're, it's probably not a surprise to you, first century you know, Palestine, this is a very uh, patriarchal society, right? So Zebedee is the father. He's got at least these two sons. And whatever, whatever the father says goes, his word is law in, in the family. And, uh, and so that's what the boys are probably used to is, okay, well, you know, dad's in charge, whatever he says, we're going to do it. Um, and this is not some, I don't want you to imagine that this is just a family fishing trip or Zebedee, you know, tells his boys, come on, we're going to go fishing today and um, grab, grab the cooler and put some sodas and some Bud Light in there and we're going to swing by Subway and get some $5 footlongs and we'll hit the fishing hole for just a Saturday afternoon of relaxing. Like, um, I don't know if that's your conception of what these guys are doing, but there's, there's, there's one little clue here that this is so much bigger than a family fishing trip. Hired servants. You see that right at the end? That they left their father, they left the nets, and the hired servants. And then you go, oh, this is a business. This is the family industry. Uh, Zebedee is not just a patriarch, he's a boss. And the boys owe their dad and their boss this sort of twofold obedience now. Like it's just gotten ramped up. And along comes Jesus. And in two words, James and John are transformed, uh, are, are, have their obedience transferred from their father and their boss to Jesus. You go, oh my goodness, you know, that's an incredible change. And it happens immediately according to Mark. We, we all obey somebody. We're all giving our allegiance and our duty and our sense of honor, you know, in relation to who we're trying to please. We're all looking around thinking, you know, asking ourselves and deciding, am I going to work hard today or not? Um, am I going to tell the truth today or not? Am I going to show up for work today or not? Am I going to show up to class today or not? Am I going to be kind to this person today or not? Am I going to lie or not? Am I going to do the right thing or not? You know, those questions we're faced with decisions over and over and over again throughout our day. And really what it comes down to is, who am I trying to please? Who am I obeying? Like the question isn't, do you obey? Uh, I, I know that we don't obey perfectly. The question is, who and why? So for you know, James and John, they've been obeying Zebedee all their lives, and now they're transferring that obedience to Jesus. Who's your Zebedee? Um, maybe, uh, maybe it is your dad. You know, maybe you do have sort of your, your dad in the back of your mind. Maybe you're not even conscious of it. And if your dad was a good dad, then he, he blessed you and affirmed you and, you know, told you good job and at other times corrected you when necessary. And, but you still just, you know, you have this sense of duty and you want to honor him and, and you just have dear old dad in your, in your mind. Or maybe dad was just this taskmaster who could never be pleased. 
and whose blessing was, was always kept from you. And even if he doesn't even walk this earth anymore, you're still, that little boy, that little girl in you is still trying to please him desperately. Or maybe it was a, a mother, you know, uh, a tiger mom, right? Just can't ever be happy with what you're trying to present. And, this, and, and, she, and you're trying to make her happy somehow. Or, you know, if she was a good mom, she was blessing you too and saying, hey, well done, good job, very nurturing, very affirming. Uh, but that's still sort of this person you're trying to please, a sense of honor, a sense of obedience to them. I don't know. It could be just your, your, your peer group, your friend group. You're trying to make them happy. It could be a coach. It could be a teacher. It could be, you know, a scout leader. I don't know. It could be a boss. It could be a wife. Could be a husband, could be a mom, could be a dad. Who's your Zebedee? Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Why are you obeying? And in the kingdom of God, I want you to transfer that sense of duty and honor and obedience from whoever it is that you're trying to please to me. And he is the king. He's the, your, your boss and, and the kingdom of God. He also becomes our father. In, in verse 1, we read about the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so there's this reference to there must be a father. And when Jesus is baptized, we saw last week this voice from heaven speaks and he says, this is my beloved son and I'm really happy with him. So there's a father speaking these, these words of blessing. And then the kingdom of God, we need to please our father. He's not asking for our blind, dutiful obedience. He's asking for our loving obedience. We need to be careful here because we get this impression uh, that the kingdom of God works with the same set of rules as the kingdom of the world, um, where you know the people who are rewarded are the ones who work really hard. Uh, that you are honored and blessed if you do lots of amazing things, if 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 you don't fail, and if you succeed. And this is why uh, in certain places and in, in certain kingdoms. Uh, the people who get knighted are the people who achieve these incredible feats. You know, nobody who's lazy gets knighted. Uh, and this is why people who demonstrate tremendous courage get the medal of honor, you know, instead of the people who are cowards and run away. Uh, and this is why, you know, uh, in any organization or in any situation or any country, the people who are uh, blessed, the people who are rewarded are those who work really, really hard, those who merit that kind of attention, those who move the ball downfield. Like the Super Bowl MVP does not go to the guy squirting Gatorade, you know, in everybody's helmet. So the kingdom of God, though, is not like that. The kingdom of God says, first of all, repent and believe. Like when you hear the word repent, I want you to just rethink your view of merit. When Jesus says repent and believe, he's saying the kingdom of God belongs to those who are repentant, not to those who are righteous. The people who get into the kingdom of God are the ones who humble themselves and say, I do not have it together and I don't measure up. Instead of those who say, yeah, I've checked all those boxes off pretty good, at least a lot better than so-and-so and so-and-so. It's the repentant. 
that get into the kingdom. And you know who's closed, shut out of the kingdom? It's not the unrighteous. It's the unrepentant. That's how the kingdom of God operates. If you don't repent, you don't get in. And so Jesus is transforming this view of merit, how we view what's, what's, you know, what we're supposed to do, how we view our relationship uh, to God our Father. And obedience to our Heavenly Father is important in that, yes, He wants our, our behavior to conform to the, you know, and be consistent with the kingdom, but really what He wants more than, more than anything is our heart. You can give Him, you know, blind, dutiful, heartless Obedience. You can conform to some parts of the law and look good on the outside, but Jesus wants our hearts. Uh, listen to Richard Lovelace again. He says, we should note um, that the immediate goal of illuminated faith is not works or spiritual achievement. Instead, it is fellowship with God. This fellowship will, of course, lead to works in the end, to thoughts and words and acts on behalf of the kingdom of God, but these works will emerge primarily out of our fellowship with Christ. They're secondary. What's primary is being in fellowship with Christ. That's why Jesus is calling um, Simon and Andrew and James and John to do what? Follow me, not obey me. He says, follow me, walk with me, be with me. Love me, right? Ultimately, that's the goal of discipleship is being in this loving relationship with Jesus through, you know, and with our heavenly father through Jesus where we get the spirit of adoption that reminds us that we're beloved sons and daughters. And out of that flows, you know, our loving obedience, not just dutiful obedience, not obedience just to get medals, not just obedience, you know, to get a medal uh, or the, the award and the trophy and so on. Obedience that flows from, from love and from fellowship. You know, the more we're with Jesus, uh, the more our um, destructive behaviors will stop, the, the more our, our, our words will conform, you know, to words of blessing instead of cursing. We become more generous. We become, you know, more faithful. We become uh, more compassionate. All those things will happen, but they will never happen apart from Jesus. And they can only happen when we're first uh, with him. So kind of back to where we started, that whole observation, right, that, that it's not an exaggeration to say that the seeds of the Christian church originated in the first act of Jesus' public ministry in which he called four fishermen into community with himself. That's what Jesus is doing. There's an invasion happening. His kingdom against our kingdom. Will we repent? Will we surrender and turn over to him the reins of our lives and say, I want to follow you. I want to be with you. I want to walk with you. I want to love you. Let's pray. Lord, would you bless us and help us to hear your voice and to obey your voice. You do all things well, even invading our lives uh, to disrupt us for good, to disrupt us for flourishing, and to, to teach us to surrender to what is beautiful and, and loving rather than holding on to the kingdom of self. Well, we pray that you would help find us obedient, find us, find us willing to, to say yes to your call to follow you, 
Uh, Help us to be near you and to walk with you. And Lord, would you address those places in our hearts where we're resistant, uh, where we're we're hard-hearted, where we have a hard time saying yes to you. Lord, would you break down our resistance and teach us uh, to say yes more and more. Lord, for any who are just connecting these dots about the nature of your kingdom, Lord, grant them faith, help them to believe, help them to see in Jesus the true king and the true kingdom that will bless us forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.